If you were here last Sunday, we did go off the script a little bit, which was okay. Uh, always want to be flexible to what God's doing and what His Spirit is uh, teaching and leading, and so it's okay. It's okay to take a detour every now and then uh, and just allow God to show us uh, new and interesting things. Uh, but I do want to kind of pick up back in chapter 3. Um, do want to kind of give you just a summary of the first part of chapter 3. Uh, because when we take all of uh, Galatians and we kind of link it together, we see a beautiful picture of God's grace, uh, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul is the penman. He, God, by his spirit, has given Paul the words to, to write down. Um, and Paul is building a very strong case that we are saved, we are rescued from God's wrath, we're saved by grace, God's grace, through faith and not of our works. And if you remember, uh, Judaizers had infiltrated the church, the churches in Galatia, and they were uh, coming behind Paul and they were teaching uh, these new Christians, they were saying, hey, you know, Paul's somewhat right. You do have to believe in Jesus. Uh, you know, he's not misleading you there. He's not teaching you wrong there. You know, our faith uh, has to be in Jesus. However, uh, there are some additional works that you need to do uh, in order to be fully and truly saved. And what they were really trying to do is saying, look, you, you have to become Jewish in order to be saved. Uh, you have to become like us, and you have to follow our rules and our regulations and our rituals and, and, and do what we do in order uh, to experience the covenant or the blessings of God. And Paul is writing this letter to refute uh, the Judaizers and to teach the Christians in Galatia as well as us that we are saved by God's grace. Not of our works. Our works will never, ever, ever get us into heaven. We're saved by God's grace through faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is building this case. And, and the first part of chapter 3, Paul uses a, a great illustration. And he talks about, listen, if you have an agreement with someone, if you have a contract with someone, if you have a covenant with someone, you cannot add or change the agreement. And Paul's talking about this agreement. For example, let's say uh, you were to go to the car lot and you, you want to buy a new car and you saw this car that you have your eye on and you want to you buy the car. And so you go into the, uh, into the dealership there, you meet with the salesperson and you, got, you guys agree on a price. Uh, let's say they were wanting, just to throw a number out, let's say they were wanting $25,000, but it's, you know, you're a wheeler and a dealer, you're going you're gonna to get them to come down on this price. So you go into the office and you say, look, I'm willing to pay... $20,000 uh, for this vehicle. The dealer says, oh, well, okay, you know, we really want twenty five, dollars but you know what? Since you're here uh, and you're willing to give us $20,000, we'll take it for $20,000. They draft up all the paperwork. You sign it. They sign it. You've agreed to pay $20,000 for this vehicle. Let's say paperwork has been signed. You've shaken hands. The deal is done. Now you're going out to uh, get into your new car, and, and you're like, you know what? I bet I could have got it for a little cheaper. 
I bet I could have got it for, for, for 15000 instead of 20000 So you go back into the dealership, and you knock on the salesman's door, and he says, hey, welcome back, you know, is everything all right? And you say, well, you know what, I was thinking on my way out to the car that $20,000 is a little too much for me to pay for this vehicle. How about we do, how about we do 15000 Well, guess what, you already have a deal. You're already on the hook for $20,000. You cannot, because you've had a change of mind or a change of heart, go back and try to change the contract, to change the agreement. And Paul's using this. Likewise, let's say, you know, same illustration. You just agreed on a car for $20,000. You're making your way out to the car, and the salesperson is running out. He says, wait, wait, stop, stop. And you stop, and you turn around, and the salesman says, you know what? I think the car is worth more than 20000 How about you give me 25000 for it? He can't change the contract. You have an agreement. You have a contract. You have a deal. It has been made. It has been ratified. It has been agreed upon. It has been accepted. And so Paul uses this because God had a deal. He had an offer. He had a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham was 430 years before Moses, right? Through Abraham, uh, we have the promise that God made to Abraham when he calls him out. He says, Abraham, I want you to look up at the stars and, 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 and as numerous as the stars are, so shall your descendants be. And God says, I'm going to bless you and all nations will be blessed uh, through you. And so God makes a promise to Abraham, and the Bible says, by faith, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so there the, the deal was made, right, between God and Abraham. And, and Paul says, not just Abraham, but his seed. Not seeds, not plural, but singular, seed. And Paul tells us who this seed is, so that we're not thinking, well, is the seed Israel? Is the seed the Jewish people? Who is the seed? Paul tells us that the seed is Jesus. So God had a covenant, had an agreement with Abraham and with Jesus. Well, 430 years later, now Moses comes on the scene and God gives us the law. And so Paul says, well, does the law, is the law opposed to the promises of God? No, it's not. Is the law contrary to um, the grace of God, not really, when you really understand how the two work together, all right? That God, God gives us his law, and because God gives us his law, God is holy, right? How many, how many agree God is holy? Everything that God does is, is holy, right? So his law, the giving of his law, it's holy, it's good, it's just, right? His law is good, it's not bad, uh, it's good. Right? But when we see the relationship between law and grace, we see that God has a purpose for the law. The purpose of the law is not to show us how we can earn God's approval. Now, although a lot of people think that, they say, well, you know what? You know, if you really want God to bless you, if you really want God to love you, if you really want God to accept you, well, then just do the Ten Commandments. You know, you know, have no other gods before him and love him and, you know, um, don't use his name in vain. Uh, you know, honor your parents, don't kill anybody, don't hate anybody, 
you know, don't covet anybody's property, don't be jealous, don't be envious. So just do the, just do the top ten, all right? And if you do the top ten, then God will, will love you and accept you. And Paul says, no, no, that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was not to show us how we can be saints. The purpose of the law was to show us that we're sinners, that we're lawbreakers. Paul says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know that I was a lawbreaker. The law shows me I'm a lawbreaker, right? For example, you know, you're driving down the road, uh, and, and I'm just speaking because I've heard people say this, it's not me, but you're driving down the road, and you see a speed limit that says 45, all right? And you look down at your gauge, and you're doing 55, all right? The law is telling me, guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm breaking the law. I need to slow down, all right? I need to do 45 and not 55, all right? The law, the law tells me that I'm a, I'm, I'm a lawbreaker, right? We don't break the law, all right? How many of you believe in the law of gravity? Believe in the law of gravity? Do you break the law of gravity or does the law of gravity break you? Think about that. If you were to jump off a building, right? All right, let's say you jump off the rooftop. Do you break the law of gravity or does the law of gravity break you? It breaks us, right? The law breaks us. The law shows us, it declares to us that we are all sinners, that we all stand before God guilty, right? Whether it's one law, 10 laws, 360 laws, doesn't matter how many laws, the laws all point us to the fact that we are sinners. Now, it's not just that. It also points to us that we need a Savior, the law, this is where God's law and grace work together, right? Because the law declares, guess what, man? We have no hope. We have no hope apart from God's grace. We need a Savior. We need someone who can save us from our sins, from ourselves, right? And so from our slavery. And so grace and law go together. They're not opposed to each other. They're not working against each other. No, they're working together. They're working together to bring you and me to Jesus Christ, right? So don't think that the law, you know, because I know some people say, well, you know what, what's the purpose in the law? If we're saved by God's grace and, and not of our works, well, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, you understand, well, the purpose of the law was to bring you to Jesus, right? And now once we're in Jesus, because say, well, okay, well now, and we'll talk about this later, because now there's this thought in our minds that says, well, now that I'm under this, this wonderful umbrella called grace, and this cushy couch called grace, then you know what? I don't need to do anything. I, don't, I can live my life any way I want, and I can live it in sin. I can live it, you know, uh, I can be evil. I can be, wait, it doesn't matter because I'm under God's grace. And there is another misconception, uh, because God doesn't free us, um, he doesn't free us to sin, he frees us from sin. And the law that was once written on tablets of stone, God now writes on our hearts. And the spirit that lives within us empowers us to do the things that please God. I mean, think about that. Apart from, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you have no desire. I have no desire to please God. 
I've got no desire, no motivation. There's nothing in my flesh, in my natural body that I want to, you know, I want to be, I want to do opposite. I want to rebel against God. I want to walk away from God. I want to stub my nose up at God, right? I want to say, talk to the hand, God. I, I don't, in my flesh, because my flesh is, is, is opposed to the things of God, but his spirit that's in me, and that's the whole thing that Paul is just driving home and home and home uh, within our life as Christians is that we have within us the power to live the Christian life. And it's not from the law. It's from the Holy Spirit. And he motivates us. He encourages us. And he corrects us. And he teaches us the things and the will and the ways of God so that we can know God and be known by him. So Paul is he's driving this home, first part of chapter 3. We come to Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 26. Paul says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor neither is there slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed according to the heirs of the promise. What I am saying is, is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world but when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons because you are his sons god sent his spirit of his son into our hearts the spirit who calls out abba father you are and so you are no longer a slave but god's child and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. A couple of observations that I want us to see from this beautiful passage of Scripture, okay? And this is one of these passages that you probably, you know, teach on and preach on and just, I mean, just for, for, for weeks, okay? But, but I just kind of want to kind of just extract a few gold nuggets uh, from, from this portion of Scripture. Number one uh, is Jesus changes our status, Again, a lot of people think, well, you know what, you know, once I become a child of God, I have Jesus, you know, he's in my heart, uh, and I'm going to go to heaven, you know, because I've trusted in Jesus, and, and, and that's, that's the extent of their theology. But we need to understand the transformation that Jesus makes in our life, all right, that he changes us from the inside out. Uh, and when we understand the, the, the the multifaceted changes that Christ makes uh, in our life. Number one, he changes our status. You see, we used to be slaves uh, under the law. All right? Under the law, we were in bondage. Under the law, we were enslaved to sin. Under the law, we were lawbreakers. Under the law, under the law we were chained. We were bound right, under the law. All right? But now that we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the law. We've been set free from the rules. We've been set free from the bondage, from the regulations. Right? We've been set free from all of that. And now our status has, has now changed, that we are now children of God. This is fabulous. 
This is wonderful. This, this, is, this is glorious when you really think about it because no longer are we slaves. We're children, right? We're God's children. Now, I know some people say, well, well wait a second. Aren't we all? I mean, isn't all of mankind God's children? I mean, aren't we, aren't we all? God, God you know, he loves us all. We're all, we're all God's children, right? Well, the Bible teaches us that uh, God is the God of creation. Make no mistake about that. All of creation, we have but one God, right? However, not all people are part of God's family, right? Not all people are. Uh, are, are part of, uh, of the family of God. Not all people, God is not the father of all people. Now, there is this universal sense that the fatherhood of God, yes, but when we talk about the intimate relationship, right, that we have with, with God, he's more than a God, he's our father. Not everybody has that, right? God is not the father of all people. In fact, let me kind of give you a few verses. Uh, first, uh, place John chapter 1, verse 12. The Bible teaches us, but as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so the question then becomes is, how then does somebody become a part of God's family? Uh, is, it, is it just a universal sense that, hey, we're all a part of God's family? No, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. To those who received him, that's Christ, to those people, right, God gave them the right to be called children of God. And so it's a right, it's a privilege, all right, to be called the child of God. Now, so often we take that for granted. So often we take being a part of God's family, you know, something haphazardly, something, you know, casually, something like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, I'm a part of God's family. But we understand the privilege it is to be a part of of the family of God, a privilege, blessing to be a part of his family. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I love this passage. We always hear this passage of scripture around Christmas time. You know, we tend to think of you know, Jesus being born of a woman. Uh, in Bethlehem, placed in that manger. But we understand what Paul is saying here and the, and the, the reality right, that God is, 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 is putting on flesh for us. He is becoming like us. He is invading uh, our world, all right? He's, he's coming to us. Now, now here's, here's kind of the, the little side note that I want us, want us to understand this morning is that God meets us where we are. We need to understand that because so often, again, if you study world religions, again, religion is just man's attempt to try to win, win his way to God, win his way to heaven, earn God's approval, whatever the case may be. Uh, but when we, uh, when we understand you know, religions as a whole, it's always the same thing. And that is, I have to work my way up to God. I've got to do something, some work, some effort, some energy has to be exerted in order to, to, to work my way up the heavenly ladder so that I can get closer to God. But when we understand Christianity is totally different than religion. Christianity, what we believe is that God came down the ladder. 
and he came here to us. He meets us where we are. And that may be the hope you need to hear this morning. Is that wherever you are, whatever situation you're in, God is able to meet you there. If you study the pages of Scripture, if you study, you know, all throughout Scripture, we see this. We see God meeting Moses out in the backside of a desert in, in uh, Midia. We see God meeting Abraham. We see God meeting Gideon. God meeting Joshua. God, God meets people where they are. God meeting Paul himself. If there's anybody who knew about God uh, going to great extremes uh, to reveal himself and to meet him where he was, was Paul. Because Paul, again, remember the story about Paul. He used to be Saul. He's on the road to Damascus. He wants nothing to do with church. He wants nothing to do with Christianity. He wants to stop it. But yet God meets Paul where he was in what he was trying to do. As negative as that is, God still revealed him and changed his life. Caused Paul to do a U-turn, right? And so God meets us where we are. Verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave. Here it is, verse 7. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is incredible. You see, our relationship with God has changed. Prior to this, God was, was God. There, there, there's nothing's changed about that, right? He's still God, right? Um, but now he's our father. If you remember when the disciples came to Jesus, uh, you know, they had watched Jesus. Jesus had fed the multitudes. He had healed the blind. He had made the lame walk. I mean, miracles, teachings. I mean, they heard so much from Jesus and the teachings that he taught, everything. And they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus to teach them to do something. And it wasn't how to do miracles and it wasn't, you know, how to teach, uh, you know, how to be a great Bible teacher. Uh, but they, taught, they said to Jesus, Jesus, can you teach us to pray like you? And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And the very first words that he says, you know, he says, you know, pray, pray in this way, pray in this manner. Use this as your template, right? Our Father who is in heaven. And from that point, our Father, there, now there was a unique relationship. That God was, was, was not just God, not just distant, not just out there, not, you know, yes, he is, he is you know, he's creator, he's awesome, he's glorious, he's, you know, splendid, uh, you know, there, there's nobody like God, but, but, but Jesus is saying, look, this God that is so awesome, so great, so magnificent has been brought near to us that now he is our father, and now there has been a dynamic change in our relationship. So pray our father. The sense of relationship, the sense of closeness, the sense of nearness. I believe that people become like their view of God. Have you ever noticed that? If, if you have a view of God that where God is very um, judgmental, uh, very righteous, very holy, very, very staunch, people tend to become... Uh, like their view of God, and, and they become you know, very judgmental, very religious, very staunch, very, very you know, holy, 
because that's their view of God. Likewise, on the, you know, the flip side of that coin is you have somebody who thinks that God is very gracious, right? Very loving, very forgiving, uh, you know, very over, over here, right? You have this side over here, very conservative view, very liberal view of God, right? Well, then they, they become that too, very, very gracious, very forgiving, very you know, liberal over, over here. Um, but we understand um, that there is, there's a balance there. Yes, God is holy, but he's loving, all right? God is righteous, but he's forgiving, right? So I want to kind of give you, because uh, many times we think, well, you know, it's kind of a, a God as master or God as father, right? You, you've you got, got God is my master. I must serve him. I must work for him. I must, I must do this. Or God is my father, right? And I must enjoy, I must enjoy his presence. So let me kind of give you a comparison, all right? Kind of help us this morning. Uh, God as master and God as father, right? Uh, if God is your master, uh, you have this, probably this mindset, you know, where, where the master uses you. All right, you're, uh, you're at the master's beck and call. You're, you're, you're there to serve the master, right? That's your, that's your mindset. That's your mentality because you view God, God is my master, right? Uh, you, serve, you serve them. Uh, you're motivated by fear. I don't, I don't want to upset my master. I don't want to make my master angry with me. So you're motivated by fear. Um, God as your father, all right, different perspective. Uh, you see God as a God um, who enjoys the relationship that we have. There's blessing in that relationship. You're not motivated by fear. You're motivated by love because the father loves you and you're very grateful for that. There's a different motivation there when it comes to serving um, Instead of a master who you feel beats you down, you have God as a father who builds us up. Yes, instead of a master who, who, there's no inheritance, you know. As a master, if you're a slave to a master, the master dies, guess what? As a slave, you get zero, you get zip, you get nothing, right? But if you view God as a father, there's full inheritance because he's your father. And so there is there's this, this, this contrast between the two. And so let me just kind of share a, a couple of uh, a facts as, uh, as it pertains to God as our Father. Number one, God is our Father. He provides for our needs. That's good. He provides for our needs. In fact, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so God, as our Father, he, he desires to provide for our, our needs. In fact, the Bible says every uh, good gift comes down from above. And so God, as our Father, relational, uh, provides for our needs. Uh, he gives us wisdom. You know, I, I think about my, my earthly father. I, I, you know, I miss him. He, he is in heaven uh, but I think about the wisdom he, he gave to me, even unsolicited wisdom, right? You know, because when you're a teenager, um, you know, you think dad doesn't know anything. 
but the wisdom he imparted, even at those young age, where you just kind of went in one ear, went out the other ear, you know, like, Dad, what do you, you don't know anything, Dad, you're, you're not cool, you're not hip, you're, you're you know, you're, you're a fuddy-duddy, you don't have any fun. But you look, I look back at that and I say, man, my dad was right on. Boy, he knew his stuff. He was smart. The wisdom he shared And so God, as our heavenly Father, He wants to impart upon us His wisdom, right? In fact, the Bible says if any of you lack wisdom, we're to ask of God. And God's not going to say, listen, are you stupid or something? Do you not have a brain? Is it not connecting? Is there nothing going on upstairs, you know, up, up here? God will never kick us away. God will never say, you know what, you, 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 you're beyond hope. God invites us, says, listen, if any of you lack wisdom to come to him, and he promises to give it to us liberally. Many times it's our pride to say, well, you know what, much like when we were younger, we don't want to ask dad for help. We really don't want to hear his wisdom because you know, he's dad. But we understand, you know what? My heavenly father, he's, he knows it. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And he promises to give us wisdom. You know, I think about a father uh, pertaining to our earthly father, pertaining to our heavenly father. God is our heavenly father. He lovingly corrects us. God does it because he loves us. You know, if God didn't love us, uh, he wouldn't correct us. If God loved us. He'd be like, do whatever you want to do. You want to hurt yourself, go ahead. You want to hurt other people, go ahead, right? I just don't care. I, 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 I love you too much to correct you. God will never say that. In fact, because God does love us, he does correct us. And that's the time, you know, we, we don't like, we don't like to be corrected by God. We don't like to be disciplined by God. We don't, you know, I remember a long time ago, a pastor used to say this, and I thought, ah, I don't know what he's saying because it's way before my time. We don't like it when God takes us to the woodshed. Remember that? Well, God said, go get your switch, boy. We don't like that. But God does it because he's a loving father. And his correction is, a, is really proof of that, that he corrects us that there's a purpose for that. There's a purpose for the discipline. Another thing, too, that I want us to kind of understand that God is a father is that he always welcomes us back. Think about the prodigal son. You know, as I was studying for this, that, that was the, the parable that just came to my mind because here's two sons, right, who were in the father's family, right? Two sons, one older, one younger, the younger comes to the father and says, Father, I want all my inheritance, right? These were sons, not slaves, right? These were sons, not servants. The younger son comes and says, God, I, you know, Father, I, I want everything that belongs to me. The father gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he spends it. You know the story. You know the parable, right? He comes to his senses. He's feeding pigs. He says, you know what? Even my father's servants, even my father's slaves have it better than I do. He says, you know what, I'm going to come back to to my father, but I'm going to come back in a different relationship. Things have now changed. This is from the son's perspective, right? 
from the son's perspective, he said, look, I'll come back to my father. I won't be his son. I'll be a servant because even the servants have it better in the father's house than the son. Right? So he says, you know what? I, I'm going to come back as a different, different status, different position, right? Relationally, I'm no longer going to be his son. I'll, I'll settle. I'll be happy if I can just be his, his slave, his servant. Comes back. You know the story. Jesus says that the father saw him from afar off, and he runs out, and he meets him, and he begins to hug him and kiss him, and, and he welcomes him back. And it's interesting because in this story, if I could just kind of just go off the cuff here, okay, and tell you what the story doesn't say. The story doesn't say the father saying to the son, son, you're no longer going to be a son of mine. You're going to be a servant. He doesn't say that. He doesn't, you know, the son, son says, hey, I'll be happy uh, with a position just as servant. But the father says, no, no, no you're, you're my son. He welcomed him back. There was no change in the relational status, no change in the relational position. He was a son. He was a son when he left the house. He was a son when he was out there in, in the world. He was a son in the pig pen. He was a son when he came back. Nothing had changed in the relational status with the son. Now, in his mind, he says, well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll settle for a servant. But the father says, no, you're my son. All right. Not only that, the father says, you know, bring out, bring out everything. Bring out the choice, you know, the choice cat. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a party here. So he welcomes him back. God is our father. We, we have this relationship with him. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And so that's, that's a spiritual reality. We need to start seeing ourselves as children of the king. That's incredible. Sometimes we don't feel that way. Sometimes we don't see ourselves in that way. Again, like the prodigal son, I'm, I'm okay with a lesser position. I'm okay with a lesser view of myself. But start to see ourselves as God sees us. Start to see ourselves as, as children of his and I love the word, Paul uses that word adoption right there. I, I love this word because, you know, God chose us. God chose us to be a part of his family. He didn't have to, but out of his grace, he, he adopted us into his family. Remember, Paul's talking to the Greeks. He's talking to the Gentiles, right? And he's, I mean, this is a beautiful picture of grace here uh, that God would do this. God was not obligated, all right? God's not obligated to save any of us. God's not obligated to be gracious to any of us. God's not obligated to show favor to us. He's, he's not. But out of his grace, he does. And so there is this, this proper view that we need to have of ourselves that we are his children. We're children of the king. We're children of the king. Second observation that I want us to pick up real quick is that Jesus changes our identity. He changes our status. Now, we're a part of God's family. We are children of the king, right? We're heirs, all right? All that God has is as ours, uh, not because we've earned it or deserve it. The whole key word that Paul uses is our faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's what Christ has done for us, not what we do for him. But Jesus changes our identity. Look at, uh, go back chapter 3, verse 27. Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with 
Christ. Now, this, when Paul says baptism, he's not talking about water baptism. All right? He's talking about a spiritual baptism. And we talk about baptism. Baptism is identification. All right? um, it, it identifies us. When we talk about water baptism, we, when, when we participate in water baptism uh, as believers, we are expressing, uh, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. We are identifying ourselves with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, right? We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We're identifying ourselves. With, it's like my wedding ring. My wedding ring identifies, guess what? I'm married, right? I'm married to my bride, my wife. And so baptism identifies us with Christ. Same sense spiritually, it identifies us with Christ. That Christ is in us, and we are in him. He has changed our identity. And Paul says, clothe, yourself, clothe yourselves with Christ. He's using a, a very familiar expression uh, that, that the Greek would have understood uh, in, in that time. In fact, if you were a male child, a Greek male child, uh, you wore a child's toga. All right? In other words, you wore children clothing. And it identified you. It identified you as a child, right? However, when you became of age, the age of uh, 15, you got a different toga, all right? It was called a, um, or excuse me, the age of 14, you were given a, a different toga, the toga virilis. And it, it signified that you were now a man, all right? There has been a change of identity. You are no longer a child. You are now a man. You are now in manhood. And not just in manhood. Now you were now under, under, uh, under, uh, under the Roman law and all this. Now you are a full-fledged citizen. And so what Paul is saying here, we clothed ourselves with Christ. We're no longer identified as little children under the law. The law brought us, was a law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, now we've clothed ourselves with Christ. Uh, we've been identified with him. And now we are full citizens of God's kingdom. It's a beautiful picture that Paul is using here. Verse 28 Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Another little note I want us to, to really get this morning is that at the foot of the cross, we're all on level ground. God doesn't love one race over another. God doesn't love one gender over another. God doesn't love one social status over another. God doesn't say, yo, you know what? I, I love the rich more than the poor or vice versa. I love the poor more than the rich. No, 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 no. What Paul is saying here is very beautiful. When we understand that in Christ Jesus, guess what? We're all on level ground at the foot of the cross, right? There's neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's nor, neither slave nor, nor free, right? But, but, Paul goes on to say, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here is unity in diversity. That only God could do this. Only God could accomplish this. Through Jesus Christ, that God could take uh, people from all walks of life, different nationalities, different you know, uh, races, and bring them all together to form one. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the body of Christ. 
There's no dividing wall, no wall of separation. Go over to Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14, Paul is speaking in reference to Jesus Christ, and he says, For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, the Jewish group and the Gentile groups. Remember, God is at work, and he's taking both, and he's bringing them both together and making one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This is beautiful. We understand the privilege that we have as God's people. Right? We're, we're, we're part of God's family. We're children of the King. But we also see our identity in Christ, that, that, that we are part of his body. He's taken the two. He's brought us together. Now, now, now we're one One body, many parts, different functions, but one. So we see that we have have access to the Father by one Spirit. When we contemplate all of this, we put it all together, uh, we see that it's relationship over rules. Relationship's always greater than the rule. The fact that God invites us to have a relationship with him. It's sonship over slave. That we are now God's children. He has set us free. He has taken those chains off. He has redeemed us. He has bought us uh, from that. He has placed us in his family. We are no longer slaves, but his children. It's peace over fear. Before we served God out of fear, before we loved him out of fear, before there was this sense of, of fear of you know, who God is. In fact, we see this over in the Old Testament. Uh, what would happen if you touched the Ark of the Covenant? You would die. So nobody touched the Ark of the Covenant. They knew. Ark of the Covenant represented the, the presence of God. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, there, there was God's presence. And so you did not just haphazardly reach out to touch the Ark of the Covenant. If you did, if you touched the Ark of the Covenant, you would die. In the tabernacle, there was a special room that housed the, 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 uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Again, you just didn't barge on in. You just didn't walk on in. Or you didn't just swag yourself right into the Holy of Holies and just kind of you know, enjoy your presence with God and just kind of chill out there. No, you did not do that. In fact, if you did, if you kind of just walked in there uh, with that kind of attitude, that mentality, guess what? You would die. In fact, you were only allowed to go in there once a year, and they took the, the high priest took special caution. They just didn't go on into the presence of God very carelessly, haphazardly. The mount, 
uh, Mount Sinai where the law was given. Again, here is this holy mountain. Again, you, the Bible tells you if you just touched the, 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 the bottom of that mountain, you would die. You just didn't, you didn't come to God that way. There was this sense of fear. But now, because of what Christ has done, he's taken away that fear. He's taken away that division. He's taken away that, that, that motivation. We're not motivated by fear. And now we can enter into God's presence. We have this relationship where we, can, where we can enjoy God. We can enjoy His relationship with us. We can enjoy His presence. And so it's peace over fear. We all have access to the same Father through the same Spirit. This morning, I just want to challenge us. That we would start to see ourselves as God sees us. And I believe so often we just go through life and, and we don't see ourselves as children of God. And we see us as Christians. Maybe even see us as followers of Jesus you know, on good days. But to start to really see us as God's children. That we're no longer slaves. We're sons. We're legitimate children of God. Because of what Christ has done. For us, every head bowed and every eye closed.